We have a great talk lined up for you tonight. Our series theme is Sanctifying Everyday Life. We know you don't want to hear any more about COVID, even though I just mentioned that. Um, so we have a great topic tonight um, called Sanctify Your Spending, and it's with Mr. Bob Klaska. Bob Klaska serves as a Chief Partnership Officer at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Previously, he worked for 20 years in Catholic education as a philosophy professor, campus minister, and administrator. Bob earned an accounting degree from the University of Notre Dame and a master's degree in philosophy from Franciscan University of Steubenville. A three-time cancer su survivor, he often writes and speaks on the topics of God, suffering, meaning, and happiness. Bob is married with five children and is a member of St. Matthew Cathedral. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Bob Klaska. Thank you. So it was a Thursday morning, and I went down to my computer to check my emails. And there was a email thread from a friend of mine who the night before had invited us to bring the kids to his pontoon and um, have a little um, party on the St. Joe River. And I had said, no, I can't. It's my niece's um, birthday. And so, so his reply to my declining of his invitation was to say, well, how about this instead? Saturday at noon, you and Margie joined me at the Elkhart Airport. And he always used proper nouns instead of common nouns. So he said, you could get on my Citation 10 airplane and fly back to Malibu with us because Tuesday night is the world premiere of the movie I just produced with Robert Duvall, Bill Murray, and Sissy Spacek. Now, we have five young children and we are not really into the jet-setting Hollywood lifestyle. And we didn't want to go, but to make a long story short, we go. And when we show up, we spend Saturday night, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday at Hollywood parties. And I don't know these names very well. I just sort of know them, but my wife knows them. But besides the stars of the movie, it was we were around a depressed dude named Nicolas Cage, a funny guy named Jimmy Kimmel, Pete Sampras, John Lovitz, Leo DiCaprio, uh, and I know some of these guys are really famous and some not so famous. So we go, and, and it, it's lavish as lavish can be. The premiere was at the Academy of Motion Picture Art and Sciences. We literally had the paparazzi taking pictures of us as we got out of David's Rolls Royce. And I just felt like an idiot. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing at them for taking a picture of me because I'm like, they're just taking a picture in case I happen to be somebody. And I'm not. But um, we, we go through this whole thing, and we, we watch the movie, and then there's a reception afterwards, and everybody stays for like 40 minutes, and then the place empties out. So then we get back in his car, and we go back to Malibu, and it's just my wife, my friend, and me, and we're out on his balcony, and uh, we're looking at the ocean, and there was this tremendous sense of disappointment. It was like, really? You, you go to a Hollywood premiere and the paparazzi are out and all these famous people and by like 10.30 at night, you're back at your house and there's nothing to do and you're like, should we order a pizza? Or like, what do we do? And, and then we're standing there and David says, you know, 
I thought it would feel different, but it doesn't. That was a great insight to me that I will never forget. David ended up dying tragically a couple years later. And just before he did, he started to form friendships with people that he had grown up with in Elkhart. And I was one of a handful of friends. He died with a wealth of $220 million net worth. And there were maybe uh, two dozen people at his funeral. He really didn't have many friends, and a lot of the people that were at his funeral were people that had worked on the movie. Um, so thankfully, just before he died, he had started dabbling in philanthropy. And uh, he tried to do these different works, and they didn't work out. So just before he died, he said, ah, screw it, I'm going to give it all as an unrestricted gift to the Elkhart Community Foundation, and he did. And uh, it, was, it quadrupled the size of their endowment and uh, really set him up. He, by the way, gave us $2 million at Holy Cross College for a scholarship. That was his only directed gift outside of this big one. So what do I think about all this? Well, it doesn't matter what I think about all this, because St. Paul has thought about this before I have. You know, in the letter to the Philippians, St. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I find myself to be self-sufficient or content. I know how to live in humble circumstances. I also know how to live in abundance. In every circumstance and in all things, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of living in abundance and of being in need. And then the money line that everybody quotes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Money is a tool. To think of it as anything more than a tool, I believe, is a mistake. Money can be considered almost an extension. Your use of money is almost an extension of your person. You apply your influence. You apply your, um, your talent when you spend money. So then Paul says again, advice for rich people. What's cool is when you get like a really casual translation of the Bible, like one that you wouldn't use for liturgy because it's sort of, but when you get a really casual and you read it alongside something like the New American that we use for liturgy, that's good. I like the King James, I like that, but then sometimes you just get like the way or something in it and it puts it in a really ordinary language. Paul says, tell rich people in the present age to quit being proud and not to rely on so uncertain a thing as wealth, but rather rely on God who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, these rich people, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, thus accumulating as a treasure a good foundation for the future so as to win the life that is truly a good life. I know better than to make more than three points 
when I give a talk. Point number one, money's just a tool. It's just a tool. It does not define you. It does not make you better. It does not even legitimize you. It's a tool. Point number one. I can put this down. Point number two. I did a lot of scripture reading on this, which was fun. There's so much to say about money in scripture that um, my problem was cutting scripture passages from this talk so I didn't just quote constantly. There's so much. There's so much guidance. And all that guidance is directed to make you happy. So here's another point. And it is consistent with what I think every person here has experienced or will experience. You reap what you sow. You get what you give. And you give first with no thought of return and it'll come back to you a hundredfold. So there's this idea in Christianity that really goes back to Judaism because it's based in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, where Malachi is um, kind of calling the Jews back to fundamental principles of leading a good life. That's where you get this word tithing. Tithing is to take one-tenth of the portion of whatever you've earned and give it away. And it's an offering to God, but it's applied to other people and other things because God has no use for money. So if you look at this biblical principle of tithing, which a lot of Catholics have heard of it, but we don't really preach it much. What does it do? Well, I'm here to give witness. 24 years ago, in June 29th, I married my wife. And we were poor. She was an admin assistant at an insurance company. I was a Catholic high school teacher and you don't make a whole lot of money doing either one of those things. But one thing we did as we did this crazy move where we left the security of Phoenix, Arizona where we met and we had a nice little secure life in Scottsdale. We left that and I went to get this master's in philosophy at Franciscan University. And of course, when we got there, she started having health problems. Then she got pregnant because we had been married six months. And I'm from a big family where that's what you do. <laughs> and she was so morning sick, she couldn't work. She was bedridden for three to four months. And the plan was for her to work and for me to go as fast as I could through school. And uh, let's just say we ran out of money and we got through, but I left before I got my degree and I had to finish my degree. I didn't finish my degree for five or six years later. But one thing we did from the beginning, we set up a second checking account. And whenever we got paid, we had an auto transfer of 10% of our money into the second checking account. And it is amazing how rich you feel when you set aside 10% and you say only good works. This can only go to good works. This can only go to people that can't pay us back. This can only go to the church. This can only go 
to somebody in need. And all of a sudden you walk around and you think like, man, I got something to offer even though you're poor. You feel rich because you must give that money away. And if you don't, it just builds up and then you're like, oh, freaking out, like I gotta spend money. And we committed to that and we've done that for 24 years. And in that 24 years, I would say, and I think people that know my family would validate this, we've had a good share of adversity in our marriage. Um, lots of illness, lots of troubles, lots of tragedies. Um, and yet, this idea that you get what you give has been borne out in each one of those 24 years. Um, in 24 years, we've never had a lot of money, but we've always had enough money. We've always used this tithing account to like support the church and brothers and sisters in need and neighbors or whoever. I'm here to tell you, in 24 years, we have received unsolicited, this is just bizarre. You're not even gonna believe this, but I can validate this. Five cars in five different situations People have given us vehicles. One was brand new, where the guy said, go to the dealership, you have $32,000, you need a minivan. And we went to Heart City Toyota and Elkhart and picked ourselves out a minivan. Out, completely out of the blue. Hardly knew the guy. Why am I saying this? I'm not saying this to tell you that we have done anything that's anything other than living by a biblical principle. You reap what you sow. You give, give, give. And you give in such a way that some people could never possibly pay you back. Or you give anonymously. Or you just give whatever's appropriate. And here's one big issue that I have. You know, we have these Catholic parishes and Catholics sort of have a passive mentality about, yeah, I'm gonna go and the staff will take care of everything and the lights are always on, the bills are always paid. But like, what do you contribute to your parish? Like, literally, it's your parish. Do you give your time, talent, and treasure? Like I think tithing could go 10% of each. 10% of your time. How many hours in a week? 168 hours. Minus 56 hours so that you can sleep. Seven hours a night. If you want to go 64 hours, fine. Sleep eight hours a night. You have 104 other hours. You got a 40 hour work week. You have 64 hours. All right, out of that 64, do you do six and a half hours of tithing your time to other people to give? If you think of it like that, you got lots of time. You have lots of money. You have lots of talent. So, 2 Corinthians, St. Paul nails all of this. Consider this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each must do as already determined without sadness or compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Here's a question I ask myself. When COVID hit, I'm sorry I brought up COVID. Is that bad? I heard somebody say, no more COVID, sorry. <laughs> I 
I personally have a way to connect with my kids. I am desperately trying to think of how to pass the faith to my kids effectively in the context of a culture that is at best indifferent and oftentimes hostile to the transmission of that faith. And I'll be honest with you, it's all I care about. It's all I care about is that my kids go to heaven and are happy forever. And, well, that's not all I care about. Then I go to my siblings, then I go to my friends. and I really just want as many people in heaven happy forever. That's really all I care about. So one of my tactics is bacon. And um, I found that on Saturday mornings, I could get my children to get out of bed to go to 7 a.m. Mass at St. Matt's if I bribed them with bacon afterwards. And it worked five out of five. Nobody complains. I just say, and I'm looking at Patrick Ernst here because it all kind of started with your dad and you and me and Michael. Uh, that if you meet, you can, even if you're not into mass, so the kids, you know, maybe they don't quite behold the majesty of the mystery. They'll go for 20, 25 minutes, and then you go and have bacon and eggs at, we would do Sira's and then it closed. Farmer's Market was a favorite. Genie's, across from Adam's. Now we walk, and we walk to 8 o'clock mass because it's Saturday and I can sleep in. And uh, we walk to St. Joe, and they have mass, adoration, confession. You get all that knocked out together, and then you walk down to the yellow cat. Anybody here been to the yellow cat? Yeah. I just, in my backyard pub, I just put up the sign that said National Sarcasm Society like we need your support. I saw it in the yellow cat. We bought it and we put it up in our pub. So you go to the yellow cat and um, this is a way to transmit the faith. So I've become a regular at the yellow cat and my server is named Michelle because how dare I be a regular and not know the name of my server. And then I've kind of gotten to know the other people, and I can't remember everybody's name, but I have that note function in my iPhone, and I'm always like writing down names, trying to remember so that I can call them by name. I'm not good with names. So COVID hits, the place closes down, they say carry out only. Well, let's talk about tipping. Tipping, when you go out to eat, is generally something that you can do for somebody who can never pay you back. And anybody who's working in the service industry knows that you get a lot of guff, you get a lot of flack. Some people are great, most people are great. But you get enough that it's hard and you're basically a dedicated servant for an hour and really you know a tip could make somebody's day it could help them in a, in a profound way like service workers and I've been one are among you know the poorest hardest working people around and yet we calculate tips like I do not want to exceed 15% down to the penny. Are you kidding me? Is it like, is that, is that what St. Paul says? I think St. Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So in my mind, I don't write a separate check or I don't pay differently but in my mind I take some of my tithing money and I over tip well guess what it's kind of fun because you become their favorite customer 
But it's also fun because you're blessing them. But it's not just throwing money at them. It's dignifying by knowing their name. This is the power of money as a tool. So as COVID went, we, I couldn't go to eat at the Yellow Cat. And frankly, I wasn't interested in carry out from the Yellow Cat. But we still stopped by the Yellow Cat to tip our waitress every Saturday morning while the Yellow Cat was closed. All right, is that the kind of world you want to live in? If it is, then let's create it. That's the kind of world I want to live in. So, well, no skin off my back, I'm actually saving money by not going to the Yellow Cat during COVID. So I get a little better tip. It's a beautiful thing. Our Lord will never be outdone in generosity. And if you want anybody to ever be generous to you, how could you even think that thought unless first you've been generous to others? There's too many scripture passages, so I will leave it at that. But what would a talk about sanctifying spending be unless you bring up the classic line from St. Paul? So I'm going to use this one. For we brought nothing into the world, and we're not going to be able to take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing, we ought to be content with that. Those who want to be rich are falling into a temptation and into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. This will plunge them into ruin and destruction. Now look, I mean, by some standards, I'm wealthy. Compare me to the world, and I'm probably in the top 5% of the world population. So I'm not just, I'm talking to myself. Also, for the love of money is the root of evils. And some people in their desire for it have strayed far from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. Can I go back to my friend David? God rest his soul. I really like this guy. He meant well. He always bought quality. This is the producer of, the, of Get Low, this Hollywood movie. He ended up with 12 houses when he died that his estate had to sell off. Every one better than the next. He called us one day and said, I just bought a house because it has an indoor playground for your kids. Can we fly him out? Can we come out and, and do it? It's like February. We're like, David, we're not like freaking flying to Las Vegas where he bought this house and pulling our kids out of school to do this. But it was like a compulsive, some people are compulsive like they therapy shop at Target or whatever. He would like go out in the morning, wake up, not be planning on buying a house, and then buy a house. It literally did this. And uh, it was crazy. He always complained about the burden of being rich. I mean, he complained constantly. He said, if I'm buying quality, why does my stuff break like everything else? Like I'm buying the nicest stuff. And because he bought the nicest stuff with the extended warranty and da-da-da-da, all of this stuff, he would get more angry when it didn't work. So we roll in and his rolls wasn't working one day. He's like, well, what the hell do I buy a rolls for if they don't even work? And he's all, it, it, it was seriously making him upset 
that all this stuff didn't work. It almost overwhelmed him. It was a full-time job to manage his assets in a way that it didn't need to be. Now look, this isn't God saying, no, no, you shouldn't have money because, you know, uh, I don't want you to be happy. This is what God is saying. Some people, in their desire for it, have strayed from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. So, like, have you ever felt liberated from stuff? Have you ever decluttered and felt liberation from your clutter? Have you ever cast aside something that you thought you had really wanted and you end up feeling free? There's something awesome. I will tell you, one of the happiest memories of my life was being a broke and unemployed, failed seminarian with nowhere to go all of my belongings in two suitcases or backpacks or whatever, duffel bags, riding in a Greyhound bus across the country with characters out of a Flannery O'Connor novel. And I, I had nowhere, I didn't even know, I, I, I was like sleeping on couches and borrowed beds I had no plan, I was humiliated, I was embarrassed, I'd flunked out of the seminary, I didn't have a job, I didn't want to go live in my parents' basement. And yet, when I was part of an insurrection on the Greyhound bus because our bus driver in the middle of New Mexico was massively drunk and at a smoke, at a smoke break, we had to call the cops in the days before cell phones and have them pulled over, arrested, and then wait six hours for a replacement driver without the other passengers knowing because they would have been pissed at us because they wanted to get where they were going. All right, some of those things, you can only experience that when you're poor. <laughs> I mean, there's no way I would ever be in that situation. And those are great memories. And you know, it's not like, is it, does a $9 ice cream cone really taste three times better than a $3 ice cream cone? You know, does, I once, I once ate at a restaurant where the guy dropped Eight or $9,000 on dinner for 10 in Rome at the five-star restaurant. They had a water menu. No, I am not kidding. I wouldn't believe this, but I will back it up. I found it online. They had 25 different waters. You could get the Alsatian Spring. You could have the Swiss Alp water. You could have this or that. And of course, they're all different prices and you're paying for it. You're paying through the nose and the, the, the wine bottles were, you know, eight, nine hundred bucks. Okay, was it fun? Was it a good dinner? Yes. Okay, no doubt. Seriously. Could I also have had almost as much fun at like some roll up your sleeves, trattoria, you know, down on a side uh, road in Rome. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's not better. I mean, I, I've been there and it's not that much better. All right. So my point, the second point, you reap what you sow, you give what you get. I'm checking my time. All right, I'm good. Third point. So, you're supposed to. Number one, 
Money is just the tool. Number two, you reap what you sow. Number three, I talk to my kids about this. Spending money is a moral action. It has deep moral implications. How you do it, why you do it, where you do it. It has an effect much greater than you may if you unthinkingly just spend money willy-nilly. Now, you're going to have to take this with a grain of salt because if you're like me, you'll go down a rabbit hole and you'll be uh, like, you'll obsess on this and you'll never be able to spend another dollar. Okay, so just stay moderate here. On the other hand, shouldn't your conscience be pricked a little? Jesus says in Matthew, where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. So let's, let's not talk about a dollar. Let's talk about a unit of money. I was trying to come up with a cute name for it and I couldn't. I'm going to call it an applied unit of personal influence. An oppie. So if I say oppie, it's generically money. But let's say you're thinking about it in the abstract. Now do an analysis of where you spend your money and what are the implications. One of the discussion questions that you're going to discuss, or hopefully, I hope you choose this one because I gave five. If a detective didn't know you and had to deduce everything about you from nothing more than a detailed record of all your financial transactions. What could he or she deduce about you? Remember, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Where you spend your oppies, your applied units of personal influence or investment, can reveal to you, in maybe a shocking way, of what you love and what you don't love. Or maybe it's all there, but it's not in the proportion you really want. So, some questions to think about when you're spending money. What does the purchase do for you? You know, is it, is it a want or is it a need? What is a need? Um, what is the opportunity cost? If you spend an oppie on this, you won't have it to spend here. People that spend, 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 like, what is it on HDTV? There's the Hoarders show. Is that HDTV? I don't know. We just, okay. <laughs> All of those things were bought. When I see that, I, I, it just makes me sad. And yet, I recognize a little bit of myself in it. Like, I'm a hoarder in some ways. I mean, my house doesn't look anything like that, but I'll, like, not give things up. Or, like, kids' artwork from um, every grade that they went through, I get sentimentally attached to it. How do I get rid of that and not hoard it? I don't know. I have to, like, <laughs> this sounds silly. When I'm trying to do it so that in my mind I'm not betraying my, like, I have a 22-year-old son, Michael. I'm not betraying my 8-year-old son, Michael, when I come across his artwork and I know I got to get rid of it, but I don't want to get rid of it. I kiss it and then I rip it up right away. <laughs> and that way the kiss is like, okay, I love you, Michael. And I get rid of it and I try to do that. But, but whatever you're spending on, what does that prevent you from spending on? Are there unintended consequences in your life? You know, 
your life changes. And I'm one of the only people old enough in this group to have seen a radical change in society since cell phones. I mean, at first, cell phones were like to talk on. And now nobody talks on them. They're like your personal all-in-one info center, director of your life dashboard for everything. And I, I do it. But there are intended consequences, and then there are unintended consequences to almost every action. Whenever you spend a dollar and you acquire something, got to think, okay, intended consequence, ice cream, good taste, smile, unintended consequence, right here. I mean, that's the most simple thing. But there are other things. You know, if you, uh, you want to exercise more, but you invest in a really nice car, then you always want to be in that car because you like it so much that you quit walking as much and where places you used to walk now you want to drive the car because it's so cool it's an unintended consequence it's not something you necessarily thought about but that can be the case with anything with any purchase here's the one that I have become acutely aware of and that haunts me with this purchase who are you enriching who are you enriching? Anything you buy, it's like, so you buy something for $100, it's a $100 vote for whoever produced and sold that good and their ideology and their purposes and what they want to accomplish in the world. So who are you enriching? I mean, to put it in like the most simple, uh, clear way, if there were two barber shops next to each other and you had to choose a barber, I'm sorry, I'm a guy, I go to a barber, style shops, okay, a hairdresser, what do, what do women call it? A style shop? A salon, okay, all right. There's two next to each other. And one is owned and run by someone who you admire deeply. And one is owned and run by someone who you think is really up to no good, can't be trusted, or stands for things that you do not believe in. And let's say the one but run by the person you admire charges a dollar more per haircut. You know, do you just say, nope, I'm going to the cheap one because that's the free market. But if you, everybody does that, guess who accumulates the wealth and the power and whatever? We contribute to people accumulating wealth and power. We create our own lords over us is Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or you know any of these guys Zuckerberg they didn't get they didn't get rich by accident they are the people that in a macro influence world events and we've done it by our consumer choices for better or for worse I'm not this is not a, uh, a judgment on any of them. I'm just saying them because they're the richest people around. It's like voting. Spending money is like voting. Any one vote, you could say, any election, you could say, nah, my vote really won't matter. Nobody's going to lose by one vote. And yet, if everybody thinks that way, elections are changed. Spending money when it comes to who you enrich is exactly like voting. So it ought to be thought of. And then you think,
here's something that we don't think of very often. How does this affect workers? You know, how was that really cute dress that you got at a discount store, where did that come from? How was that made so cheaply? Who's profiting off of that? I don't know. Follow the money. Now, like I said, you can drive yourself crazy thinking about this, and certainly we're all going to make purchases. You almost can't live in the world without paying somebody that you don't like or you don't want their ideology to win. On the other hand, maybe we ought to be a little more intentional and thoughtful about who we're voting to be our lords. And that's, so money is a tool and it's a moral action. Now this was a great rabbit hole I went down while I was preparing this talk. Bob Dylan had two albums in the period where he was a born-again Christian. And I remember discovering them and I just loved this Bob Dylan, uh, these two albums, because they married like the only singer I could ever kind of imitate is Bob Dylan because he's so bad and my voice is so bad. I'm like, yeah, I love Bob Dylan, man. I can sing along with Bob Dylan and I kind of sound like him. Um, so he has this song from that era that has been remade many, many, many times from in many, many different genres. It basically says you got to serve somebody. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Bob Dylan goes, and this whole song is a litany of, it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And then he goes through and, and talks about people, great people or low people and all these different things. And it keeps coming back. You're going to serve somebody. Even if you don't like that your spending habits creates the lords of society, it doesn't matter if you don't like that. It doesn't matter if you don't think about it. It's true whether you believe it or not. What I think as Christians we ought to do is be really thoughtful about who we enrich and try to enrich good people. And I don't mean just Christians, I just mean good people. And maybe give a preferential option if there's a local alternative. The thing that I always do is like, you know, I know Sue McFarland at Divine Mercy Gifts. It's really hard to have a retail shop nowadays. She's run it for 25 years. I don't know Sue that well. I knew her, I knew her son, Joe. Um, but it's been, it's been a, a beautiful thing in the community, and I've loved going in there for First Communion gifts and whatever. Well, you know, I can get pretty lazy and order stuff online, and I cannot get in the car and go to Amazon but because my spending is a moral action and I want to have a relationship with someone and not have everything be detached, I'll deliberately go in and, uh, and buy my stuff from Sue. And I think we can all do that. All right. My three points. Money is just a tool. You reap what you sow. And the spending of money is a moral action. Thank you.
You spoke for a brief time about the difficulties of ethical consumption under capitalism. Yeah. Is it even possible? Like, probably half of what I'm wearing is from a third world country where yeah. the people don't get paid enough. And is, is our very economic system unchristian in that, in that way? I, I don't know. I'm troubled by the same question. And uh, I'm not going to BS you. I don't know. I'm haunted by it too. Not everything is bad. I mean, there's lots of good things. But when it comes to sweatshops and clothing and stuff, that's like an industry where it really hits home. I don't know. I, I'm sorry. It's not a good answer. I'm not a good speaker. <laughs> but and if anybody else wants to answer that, I'm sure Andrew Weiss would have some ideas. He, he and I always have these discussions. Anyway, I'm sorry. We had a question come up about uh, what your philosophy is with in regards to beggars or people on the streets when you see them do you give them money every time you see them do you give them like gift cards what's your take on it uh, generally I have a preferential option for giving and if I have something I will um, I know people take advantage of me and I'd rather be taken advantage of and it's a few bucks it's no skin off my back what I try to do is never give out of guilt, but stop and have a conversation and dignify that person with a human interaction because if they're begging for money, they're probably also lonely because people with lots of support and interpersonal support generally have a way to make it. What I often do is take them into the car and take them to a place where they want to um, eat and then pay for them. Occasionally, I'll give them money even if they want to buy beer. Um, I don't do that much, but I have uh, because I've been caught off guard and I'm like, I don't know what it's like to be you. Um, so that's, that's what I do. I, I don't do gift cards because gift cards are actually a form of currency on the street that you could trade for other things. So I try to either give them um, food directly and spend my time, inconvenience myself to sit with them or give them money and occasionally and if you ask my kids occasionally we have taken people in and have slept on our couch under certain circumstances I'm not advocating that for everybody look I mean I'm not saying pick up everybody it might be dangerous I I'm just telling you what I do and I would rather go down trying to help and I would rather be a victim of a scam, nah. I would rather, I'd rather err on the side of trying. The worst thing I could think of would just be being cold. Now having said that, people latch onto me, like, you know, regulars, and I have to admit that sometimes I like avert eye contact and walk fast and try to avoid them. Because I, I, I don't, so here's another thing. I don't know what to do. I pray about it, I think about it, I try to act in the moment. I don't know what to do. Um, and then, you know, we all, we could also say, well, I give to an organization that helps. That's good too, but too much of that depersonalizes it too. So like, I don't know, I think we're supposed to be troubled by these things. I think it's hard. It's hard to be a human being. It's hard to be a Christian. I have a second question. Um, 
one of the most consistent messages in the gospel is give all you have and follow me. Um, and that's kind of, seems to be re- repeated over tradition um, from the early church fathers who gave all they had and lived in community to the, the even even more modern like those the the liberation theology kind of leftist economics. You talked a lot about voting with their with your dollar in terms of where you go to a restaurant. Is our vote in terms of economic justice any different than voting with your dollar? I keep talking because I don't quite understand your question. We we talk about the right. like a lot of people talk about how the economic uh, ch- giving charity is a is a personal decision. But is it right. is it any less of a and, and like charity is a personal action that you do? But is voting for higher taxes any different than vo- giving someone a do- giving a few no no I, dollars? I, right. I would say that voting is a moral action. And so is spending money, so is giving money away. I, I would wholeheartedly agree with you that it's a moral act. Um, and, but it's a both and thing. It's not like, well, I'll just take care of that with my vote and I'm not gonna worry about where I spend or vice versa. So I think your insight is right. I, I have the same understanding that they're both moral actions. And, but then, you know, it gets very complex about how to structure society, a just society. And unfortunately, it's hard to talk about now because you really, nobody's free to say what they want to say and you really can't have good dialogue over Twitter. Um, but, uh, but it's a worthwhile conversation. And I do think it's a part of who you are, who you vote for and what you vote for, but everything's imperfect. Like, you know, do I give the money to the guy who may spend it on booze or not? I don't know. Or what if he spends, I give him 10 bucks, and what if he spends seven wisely and three unwisely? All right. Well, what if I vote for somebody who 70% of their platform I agree with and 30% I don't? And how do I do that? It's just a mess. And, but that's being human and we do our best. Tell me this, this will make me really happy. One person walk out of here and open another account for tithing. Just tell me you're gonna do it. So one person, yes, thank you. I love that. It's Hello. so awesome. I've got a question over here. Oh, okay. Um, so a lot of, I was, a lot of the way that uh, you frame the talk is in terms of being a consumer, in terms of voting with your money. But sometimes it seems like the paradigm of consumer assumes that like I'm the one that's in power. Mm-hmm. But what if like we live in a society where a lot of us have student debt, a lot of us don't have a choice of where, to a certain degree of where we can purchase because all of the dominant options are corporations which are tied up with injustice. So it just seems to me that there's some like limitations to the model of like consumer and like voting choice. Like, how do we address those sort of systemic factors that make it so that we can't, we aren't even in, we aren't even in a power, we aren't in a position of power to be able to even make some of these decisions, like it, because they're being made for us. Yeah, well, that, I think that's tied to his thing of how you structure society. Although I would say. I think there are lots of things that you assume are decision made for you, like student debt. That look, I, I incurred stu- some debt and uh, that aren't necessarily a given, even though the world kind of says it is, but you don't necessarily have to participate. Now, you may like, kind of become awake to this after you're already $40,000 in debt or something and then you're like, well, I gotta pay my debts. Um, But like, I agree with you that it only goes so far. And yet, I also would challenge you or anybody, myself, to examine your fundamental assumptions of what is a need and what is a want and what is good for you and good for the world and what is not. 
So the classic thing, when I knew I was working at a good place at Notre Dame Credit Union, was we got this new retail officer, and he was doing a branch visit on Ireland Road, and a guy and his wife walked in, and they had one child, and she was like eight months pregnant, and they said, we're here for a car loan, we need a minivan, because we're having our second kid. So, you know, you make money on car loans, so you want a car loan, okay? But JW, my colleague, was like, okay, look, we look at your finances, yes, your income will support you to get a minivan. It's your choice. But I'm telling you, I've, I have several children. You don't need a minivan with two kids. There's two seats in the back of your car. There's two car seats. He said, if I were you, I would pay down my debt and just live a little simpler, forego the minivan if you have a third kid, then get the minivan. And you know what? He talked him right out of a loan. And uh, then they had a third kid and they came back and got the minivan. We got the business anyway, right? But, but I mean, again, that's the kind of world. I, uh, how are we going to change the world? I don't know. I'm not sure, you know, this group is possible to change the entire world. But what we can do is change our little circle of influence, make our world a little more humane, a little more loving, a little more Christian. And that's not insignificant. So, I... Can you give us one example where your faith has kind of collided with your professional career in finance, where you know, some practices in finance can be somewhat predatory, or you, know, you, ex you just gave an example of when it kind of went right and good things happened. What's right. been the biggest kind of collision for you where it was really hard and you had to really grapple with it? I met it five years ago when I joined the credit union. We had a guy who celebrate so there's an old adage that says what gets measured gets managed okay so whatever your all the metrics that you're measuring are the things you're trying to put to your advantage so we measure things uh, like dollars on deposit percentage of a person's uh, wallet like whether their debit card, their credit card, their mortgage, their car loan, whatever, you know, we, we want to have as much of our members' commitment as possible. All right. Um, and this is the thing that I've been refreshed about because I was troubled. I kind of went in kind of defensive thinking, I'm not going to like this because I'm more of like, I think not purely, but more like Dave Ramsey who says, don't go into debt. And don't carry a balance on your credit card. I think it, I, I don't carry a balance on my credit card. I don't think you should either. And yet that's how banks really make money on credit cards. There's another way too. Every transaction has an interchange fee. And uh, that's, so that issue right there, when a guy sort of celebrated and boasted about total interest revenue off of credit cards as though it were an accomplishment it started an argument and I was new to the thing and um, I felt very uncomfortable because to me do not carry a balance on your credit card <laughs> it's the worst investment you can make and it just encourages you to overspend so I run into these things that or um, fee income for things like banks will typically charge an analysis fee for a corporate account. You know what an analysis fee is? They're charging you 32 bucks to look at your statement every month. Like what, what the heck? Um, so like we've done away with analysis fees. <laughs> well, I don't think we ever had them, but we make fun of them now. Um, but there's, there's all sorts of things and I'm always on the lookout but look I'm not a pure banker I came in out of education and for five years I've been googling terms under the boardroom table kind of like I, I, 
I've never been qualified for any job I've ever had, and I've always had to sort of fake it and just, like, here's one of the key things is to shut up and just nod your head, listen really keenly, Google some terms under the boardroom table, go back to your office and research the hell out of it. Um, and and th that's largely been my life. Now I'm kind of got my sea legs and I can do it, but a lot of these things I was very afraid of and... Um, and then, like, I'm in an interesting conversation with this Catholic worker house in Portland um, that what is usury in the, the, you know, traditional condemnation of usury? Well, what is it? The definition of usury and what is really meant by it is where the essence of that problem is. Is it any interest at all? Or... Is it an unjust interest? And was that prohibition against usury before a modern economy that had things like inflation, where a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in 1980? So you have to make adjustments to have the same thing. So it gets obviously beyond the scope of this conversation, but there are lots of issues like that that. I wouldn't say I'm afraid of them, but I'm sensitive too, and that's like one of them. Thanks, and thank you for the thank you for the, appreciate it. <laughs>